Come on, that was awesome. We are blessed. So good. Good morning. Jeff, good to see you, man. Mandolin, good to see you. Awesome. Good to be here. I love our church. If I wasn't going here, I wish I was. Awesome. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. It's funny, we sing that song. Uh, some of us have sang that song since we were really little. We sing it with loud abandon. We just, we just sing it out as if uh, it's something that you're supposed to do at Christmas. Oftentimes, uh, not really knowing what the words are that we're singing. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. I wonder what it's like if we could actually receive our king as joy in our world. How has joy come into your world? You know, some of you, this Christmas season is, is a time of celebration for sure. Some of you, this Christmas time is the, a, a moment you long for all year long. Uh, my wife and I had this friend of ours who had this Christmas tree that literally sat in their living room all year long. And, and they would decorate it for different moments. So the, the Halloween stuff and the Thanksgiving stuff and the Christmas stuff. And it was like it was always Christmas because they just loved Christmas trees and Christmas stuff. Sometimes I think we forget the joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. How are you feeling today with joy coming into your world? Are you encouraged by it? Do you feel so excited about these next few days? Or are you at the point of exhaustion thinking, dear God, please be done with this stuff? Some of you are like, you just read my mind, right? So, some of you have family in town. And to you, if you're guests with us this morning, welcome here. Sure, sure glad to have you. Uh, welcome home. Uh, we love having you with us. And for some of you uh, who don't have parents here or family here today, you're glad that they're at home sleeping in, so you get a minute. Right, so uh, to that, uh, enjoy. You get to watch the Seahawks beat up on the Chiefs this afternoon, so that'll be amazing. <laughs> He's over there giving me the hatchet sign. Both of them are like enough. Joy to the world, Lord. I pray today that you help us as we navigate these next few moments to see what it is that you have to say about joy coming into our world. Lord, we need you a bunch. There's no one like you. You truly have come into the world. Would you let us receive our king? We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have your Bibles, open it up if you could to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. Over the last several weeks, we've been uh, talking about the uh, nativity narrative. We've been talking about different scenes that we have seen <clears throat> excuse me, in the nativity narrative where the shepherds who were out in the fields guarding their flocks by night and uh, Mary and Joseph who were, the Bible says, obviously pregnant on their way to the little town of Bethlehem. Many of you have that nativity scene somewhere in your house and you've put them up and I'm certain that over the last couple of weeks I have truly messed with your nativity scenes uh, as to how they really played out into what it is that Hallmark wants us to see <laughs> And in a lot of ways, there are some uh, pretty, in my opinion, some pretty astounding realities that we can find through history uh, from the Bible. We can find in a lot of ways that help kind of paint in the corners of some of that which was going on. 
It was a pretty troubling time during this particular uh, moment in history when all of this was happening. We bump into uh, some kings and we bump into uh, 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 Herod and we bump into other people who showed up in this narrative. So if you'll allow me, let's read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It says, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from the eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star as it has risen, as it arose, and we have come to worship him. Herod was deeply disturbed by their question, as was all of Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. Where did the prophets say that the Messiah would be born, he asked? In Bethlehem, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. O Bethlehem of Judah, you are not just a lowly village in Judah, for a ruler will come to you who will be a shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod sent a private message to the wise men asking them to come see him. At this meeting, he learned the exact time when they first saw the star. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. When you find him, come back and tell me so that I may go myself and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went on their way. Once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, and it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house where the child was, but where the child and his mother were, and I'm sorry, where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But when it was time to leave, they went home another way, because the Lord had warned them in a dream not to return to King Herod. It's interesting, as I read and reread this story, most of which is familiar to most of you, I read and reread this story this week, and it really began to say, like, God, is there something here that we're missing? Something here, perhaps, that, that, that is just blaringly obvious that we either see or that we're missing. You know, one of the things I saw more than anything else in this in this story of Jesus being born in a stable in Bethlehem and, and all of the, the likeness of this whole thing. Here's what I, I, I was struck with the reality that everyone that came in contact with Jesus coming into the world had a response. Everyone in the narrative had some sort of response. We know that shepherds ran. Uh, we, we know that, uh, that, that, that cattle low, whatever lowing is. We, we know that we know that there were, there were three kings, apparently, that show up with gifts. We know that Herod was freaked out. We know that the city of Bethlehem had shut down its doors and there were no room in the inn. Something happens to people when they come in contact with joy to the world. Something happens with even us today as we come in contact with joy to the world, as we come in contact with Jesus coming into our world. It just made me stop and think that every single person that bumps into the name of Jesus at some point responds. That there's no almost indifference to the name of Jesus. I can stand up from any mountaintop or microphone or TV station and talk about God. <laughs> I can say all I want to about God and I'll hear many people shout with words of encouragement and affirmation. But the moment I mention Jesus, something happens. There's a line drawn in the sand. There's something about the name of Jesus that forces us to, to respond, that forces us to, to, to somehow either believe what it is that he says and run towards him or to perhaps 
make up something of which we want him to be so that we can be a little away from him. Jesus forces us to somehow make a response, doesn't he? Just the name of Jesus causes some sort of a, of a response. It elicits that in us. Why? It's more than just the, 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 the letters of his name. There's more than that. There's something about him coming to earth. God coming to earth is man that causes the world to just shudder and shake a little. There's something about this, this, this baby being born in a stable, if you will. There's something about this, this baby showing up from this basically unknown, unnamed couple who show up in this obscure little part of the Middle East that caused the world to shake and quiver. I love the fact that joy coming into the world causes all of us to respond. And the truth of the matter is, is when we hear the name of Jesus, see the name of Jesus, speak the name of Jesus, or in the midst of the name of Jesus, we'll either run to him or from him. Hmm. Interesting. I love this. I think it's interesting that when joy came into the world, that the people in the narrative of our nativity story all leaned in just a little closer. The shepherds leaned in a little bit. The angels cried out perhaps a little louder. We see the kings opening up their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know, it's interesting as I've been thinking through this, this narrative, trying to figure out uh, who are some of the players? You know, I, I started to think that there were, there were a couple of players that we don't talk a lot about. I mean, we certainly talk a lot about the shepherds and the, the, the angels that split the sky when they began to sing hallelujah and they ran to see. We talk about Mary and Joseph. We even talk about the city of Bethlehem, even the stable. But there's a couple of people that I read in this story of Matthew chapter 2 that, that really forced me to pause and to really ask, uh, to take a look at their responses. And, and, and by the way, these two particular groups of people responded. Both of them responded with one phrase, I come to worship him. Both of them came as worshipers. And I want to talk to you today about these two groups of people who came as if to worship the newborn king. One was genuine and one was phony. One was real and authentic and one was delivered with passion and exuberance and the other was delivered with a sense of, um, I don't know, man-pleasing uh, man-fearing, all sorts of weird posture. Two groups of people, two groups of people I want to talk to you about is this. I want to talk about the kings, the three kings that showed up, apparent kings. We call them kings. We sing the songs about we three kings. There's something about the three kings that we show up. There's actually people over, and I think it's in Ethiopia, who actually have skulls that they dug up that they believe are the three kings. They've built a shrine to them, and people come to worship with the king's heads. Yeah, weird, right? So, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that go on, and, and, and the world has come up with the three kings as if that's what's happening. The truth is, is we don't know that they were kings at all, which is kind of funny because they got skulls to prove it. We don't know that they were kings, but we know that there was something about these, these people who brought gifts. We don't even know that there were three of them. All we really know about these people that came to worship Jesus with gold, frankincense, and myrrh we know a couple of things about them. Here's what we know. We know that they came from the east, right? We know they came from the east. We know that they were men that were wise. They came from the east. We know that they were wise men. We know that they followed a star. Uh, we know that they did something ridiculous to get close to Jesus. They left all that they had to come pursue this baby. And we know that they came to worship. We know that these wise men came to worship. 
Wise men came to worship. These wise men came to worship. Who were these wise men that came to worship? Matthew 2, 1 says this. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where's this newborn king of the Jews? We've seen his star, and we've come to worship him. Who were these wise men? You know, that's interesting because in the Bible, remember it's translated, the Old Testament, New Testament is primarily Hebrew, Old Testament, Greek, New Testament. But then in the midst of it, there's some Aramaic that goes in there. So Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. The, the Bible that, that was written over a span of 1,500 years literally has this moment where three different primary languages with which it was written uses the word for wise men in the Hebrew and in the Aramaic, the word magi. We know that the word magi show up. And some of you actually remember reading that in your, your Christmas narratives that you have read, the magi. The word magi actually is a root word where we get the word magic, right? There's something about the magi or the magicians who were from this time. But who were they? Who were these people that came to uh, reckless, get this, they, they went to King Herod, right? Let me tell you this. When you come to a king and you say there's a newborn king, they're not happy about that. These, these strange wise people show up to the king and said, we're looking for the new king. Let me tell you this, that probably posed the scotia of a threat on King Herod. How do we know that? Just taking a look at how he responded. Listen to this. The Magi. They were probably a group of people from what was called Medo the Medo-Persian Empire. The Magi. Listen, the Magi had two primary roles back in that day. Back in that day, the Magi, or the wise men, had two primary roles. The first was to give counsel to a king. Their job were the, the wise guys who would listen, who, funny, the wise men who would talk to a king. The king would have this quandary, it would have a question, and he would pursue the wise men. He would bring the wise people in, the wise men really, and he would say, here's my question, here's my quandary, here's my situation. He would talk to the wise men and hopefully get their collective wisdom. And so they would pursue the stars, they were astrologists, and uh, they were magicians, they would come up with potions and different things. They show up all over in the Bible as different names, but for the most part, the astrologers or the magicians, the magi is what we show up here in the Bible often. They gave spiritual insight to a king, a pagan king. The second thing that they did, listen to this. Here's what a magi was there for, to, to give insight to a king. And the second thing was to identify the new king. Magi's job was to give wisdom to a pagan king and to identify its replacement. Their job was to look and say, this is the new king. Whatever it was, their job was to give confirmation for the new king, right? Again, not so great when the current king is already still alive. Hmm. I want to take you back 500 years from the birth of Christ. So 500 years back from the birth of Christ, a couple of uh, months ago, we were in some of this passages of Scripture where the children of Israel, God's people, <clears throat> had been taken into captivity. 500 years before this, they were taken captivity in Babylon. Remember? Babylon was this, th this crazy place. They were taken out of their land, taken into Babylon. <clears throat> While they were in Babylon, a group of men were taken before the rest of the nation of Israel some of the people you're familiar with, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all those guys, remember Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? You know the song, right? Th those group of people, they all went in, in this exile. They were all in Babylon 500 years before the birth of Christ. While they were there, they were taken as prisoners to Babylon. Babylon was the Medo-Persian Empire. They had all kinds of crazy pagan things going on. While they were there, some funny things happened. Listen to this. Daniel chapter 2, just for the sake of time, I'm going to try ripping through this. Daniel chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me. One night, 
The second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him so much that he couldn't sleep. He called his magicians or his magi, his enchanters, his sorcerers, his astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him the dream that he had had. As they stood before the king, he said, I have had a dream that troubles me. Tell me what the dream is, for I must know what it means. Verse 4, it says, The astrologers answered the king in Aramaic. Long live the king. Tell us what the dream is, and we'll tell you what it was, what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, then you'll be torn limb from limb uh, from your houses and demolished into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what, a, what my dream was and what it means, then I'll give you wonderful gifts, honors, just as, uh, just tell me what the dream was and what it means. Then again, uh, they said again, please, your majesty, tell us what the dream was and we'll tell you what the dream means. The king replied, I can see through your tricks. You are trying to stall for time. Because you, because you know I'm serious about this, if you don't tell me the dream, then you will be condemned. You have conspired to tell me these lies in hopes that something will change. But tell me the dream and I'll let you know what the dream, and then we'll let you know what the dream means. And tell me what the dream means. Verse 10. The astrologers replied to the king, there isn't a man alive who can tell you your majesty his dream. No, no king, however great or powerful, has ever asked such things from any magi, enchanter, or astrologer. This is an impossible uh, thing for the king that the king requires. No one except the gods can tell us what your dream was. And, uh, and they don't live among people. Pause. This is in verse 11. Down in verse 14. I'm just going to go here with my own language. What happens was, is Daniel was part of this group of wise men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were part of these wise people that gave counsel to the king. Get this. As it turns out, what, was, what happened was, is Daniel was approached, because they, none of them could tell the king the dream, so Daniel was approached by his executioner. And I love this. It says, as the executioner came to Daniel to kill him and his friends, it says that Daniel said, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. What are you doing here? He says, I'm here to kill you because none of you guys can tell the king his dream. And he goes, we didn't know that we, we were supposed to come up with the answers for that, but give us a minute and maybe we'll figure it out. I love it. It says that Daniel approached him with wisdom and discretion. I think if we were approached by an executioner, most of us wouldn't speak with wisdom or discretion. <laughs> Chances are fairly likely that we'd just yell and scream and run. I love that Daniel just was calm about it and said, hang on a second, there's more here to the story. So the, the executioner leaves. Daniel goes to his friends. I love this. He goes, guys, pray like your life depends on it. We need to hear from God what that dream was, or we're done, right? I love this. So Daniel goes for it. He, they, they pray. They get the heart of God. They get the, Daniel gets a, 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 an understanding, a complete understanding of the dream. He goes and tells the king, here's your dream, and here's what it means. The king loses his mind, and he's like, what? How did you know all this? And listen to this. Down in verse 48 of chapter 2. Then the king was so pleased that he appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many gifts that were valuable, uh, he made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his magi, wise men. 500 years before Jesus was born, Daniel was put as the chief over all of the wise men. The wise men that showed up to the stable that day came from the east, Medo-Persian Empire. They, could you imagine if these guys were actually people who 500 years before had been tossed down and down and down, not to seek the stars for whatever the stars could line up and say and do, but to seek after God and find out who he really was and come as the magi. 
to declare. And get this, if you read Daniel chapter 9, just a few chapters after this, you'll see this prophetic word that Daniel has in this exchange that he has from this angel that begins to explain to him what's about to happen in a few hundred years. What if, what if all of these wise men had passed down to them that there's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem a baby, born of a virgin? And these guys show up in the fulfillment of that time. See, what if these magi were actually godly people that show up? In fact, the truth of the matter is, is we don't know if there were three of them at all. We know they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The three gifts actually symbolically meant gold from the past, frankincense from the current, the present, and myrrh for the future. What that was going to, myrrh is actually the same spice that was used when Jesus was hanging on the cross. And remember, that it says that the, 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 the guard dipped his sponge in, in, in called gall or myrrh and put it up on a sponge and handed it to Jesus, it was symbolically prophesying the fact that Jesus was going to taste death. This whole story is amazing to me because it's, it's so much more than three kings that showed up from Orient R, whatever that is. They showed up fulfilling a prophetic message. In fact, it's amazing to me when I even think about Daniel. Imagine Daniel. Daniel, 500 years before this, is sitting in prison, falsely accused, being sentenced to death, about ready to lose everything, including his life. And then God shows up when he begins to pray and gives him an answer to his deepest prayer. It made me stop and think about you and me. Some of you feel like your back is against the wall just like Daniel's. And whatever the situation you find yourself in today, perhaps could it be that just before... Just before all craziness breaks loose that God's calling you to get to your knees and cry out to him because he's got a message not only for you but for your children's children's children. Could it be? I think we're so narrow-minded and so focused that we think life is all about us. The message that Daniel received wasn't just for Daniel. The message Daniel received was for us. The trial that Daniel went through was for you and me 500 years before. I love the fact that these wise men came to do one thing. They came to worship the king. I love the fact that they came. I think King Herod freaked out because King Herod knew wise men and he knew what wise men were for. And he wasn't there to get wisdom from them. They were there to identify this new king. Hmm. What, about, what about him? What about King Herod? He's another player that I want to talk about with you today real briefly. What about King Herod? Who was he? Herod shows up in our story as this kind of sinister, you know, bad guy that shows up with this idea in mind that he's there to, you know, it's interesting because when we do some history about, uh, read a little, little about who this King Herod was. King Herod was a really powerful guy. He was kind of a vassal king for the Roman Empire, right? So he was set over this region of, of the nation of Israel and that whole area. In fact, they were, he was actually put in place as, get this, King of the Jews, Right? So the people in Rome didn't like Jews. The people in Rome said, well, you be a Jew. You, go do, lead them. And he's like, okay, I'll be the king of the Jews. Well, they hated Jews, and, and he hated Jews. The Jews hated him because he, he proclaimed to be the king of the Jews, but he stinketh. He was horrible. He, he, was, he didn't like Jews. He didn't like it either, but he was like in place of them. King Herod, it says here in Matthew chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Herod told them, these wise men, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. For when you find him, come back and tell me so that I too may go worship him. He was lying. He was full on lying. King Herod, when he was 25 years old, was named the governor of Galilee. He was hailed in 40 BC as the Roman Senate named him the king of the Jews. King Herod, man, he was a, he was a, a kind of a weird dude. He, he was very powerful. He created in that region seven palaces and seven theaters. One of the theaters he had built housed or seated over 9,500 people. 
And get this, one of the largest uh, auditoriums that he built for sporting events sat 300,000 people. The dude was, he, he was super powerful, but he was massively paranoid. Herod was paranoid, so paranoid, he was really paranoid because his father was killed by somebody who poisoned him. His father was also in leadership. Get this, he was so paranoid that he killed his brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, his two sons, and his wife. He was so freaked out that someone was going to come and mess with him. He had this massive preoccupation with paranoia. He built all kinds of things. If you ever go to the Middle East or Israel, you'll go to a place on your tour called Masada. Masada was this, uh, basically this huge hunk of land that kind of shoots up out over the Dead Sea. And you can kind of see, it's a, he, put a, he was going to build his kingdom up there. He had it fortified. He had it provided for. Somehow he built cisterns that came, brought water up. I mean, it's crazy. He did all this stuff, all because of his preoccupation with paranoia. He was so afraid someone was going to try to off him. Imagine the mindset of King Herod. When these guys come running. Now, by the way, there might not have, have just been three kings that showed up. Chances are pretty likely there could have been around 100 people. Imagine 100 people riding in on horses, all dressed up as wise men, show up to the nation of Galilee and say, hey, what are you guys doing here? We followed a star. It led us here because we're coming to identify the new king. Oh, paranoia and then some. He just went crazy, right? So then he comes up with his solution. You know what? Have him come in and see me privately. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go worship him just like you. It just made me stop and think how he could say the right words but mean something completely different. And how often that's that way for you and me. Oftentimes we are confronted with Jesus, joy coming into our world, and we find ourselves doing some of the same things. We want to come worship you, Jesus, and maybe like the, the wise men, we come recklessly uh, abandoned unto him and we say, God, you're what it's all about. And maybe some of us are like King Herod and we come with this posture of fear, a preoccupation with paranoia, wondering who's going to find us out and expose us. Yet we still say the same words coming here to worship. Hmm. King Herod knew the wise men were there to identify this Jesus. But here's my question for you today. How will you worship Jesus when he comes into your world? Will you worship him with fear or will you worship him with faith? Will you worship him in courage or will you worship him with paranoia? Will you say, Jesus, you're all that matters. You're the most important thing. Or do we find ourselves hoping that people think we're following God, but really we're just simply saying, ah, I, I'm so nervous that he's going to wreck my life and take my stuff and do my life differently. Or do we say to ourselves, God, you are what it's all about. I give you all of me. Hmm. The wise men worship Jesus selflessly. They were purposeful, they were public, and they did it plentifully. The wise men came with gifts. The, the wise men came with passion. The wise men came knowing the king, with the king of, was a king of paranoia. The wise men came and showed up and said, listen, I'm coming. And by the way, what was the star that they saw? You can watch the History Channel and I'll find out all kinds of stuff. Uh, that there was a, that they tried to rewind the stars back in the heavens to see if there was, a, like there was maybe a star that landed over Bethlehem. I don't know. Personally, I think it was an angel that showed up and said, over here, come on. Like, I, I got a funny feeling there was an angel saying, like, come on, over here, follow me. I, again, maybe I'm weird, but I think, there, I think it was a little more clear than that. 
And there was this moment that these, these, this angel, if you will, or the presence of God, the Bible says, remember in the Old Testament, the ark of God had a pillar of fire. I think it's possible for God to light the night sky anytime he wants to. God lit up the sky. I think there might have been an angel or something that said, hey, listen, over here, fellas, or whatever it was, the wise men show up and they do their part. I love the fact that they worship selflessly. They worship uh, uh, j- j- literally with abandonment and said, listen, I will give you all that I am. Hmm. King Herod, however, worshiped selfishly. He attempted to worship Jesus fraudulently, fearfully, and in frailty. He was so afraid of being exposed. He was so afraid of being found out. He said the same words. I want to worship that newborn king. But there was this fraudulent phoniness that showed up in him. I remember being raised up in a church that I went to for most of my teen years and and, and younger. And and I remember feeling that there was a sense of authenticity that I might have been missing in my worship of God. And it wasn't until I turned 18 when I finally surrendered my life to the Lord that I realized that that authenticity wasn't really there, that I wasn't really worshiping God. I was really just trying to hope that other people thought I was worshiping God. I wanted people to see rightness in me, see that I was taking steps that were righteous, if you will. But on the inside, I felt so lost. I felt so fearful. I felt so afraid that my life would be somehow turned upside down if I recklessly began to run after God. Honestly, I love it with you. I was raised in a Catholic church. I was fearful that God was going to call me to being a priest, to being a Catholic priest. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that thing. I don't know if I want to be like set apart for ministry for the rest of my life. Right? He had a funny on me, didn't he? I love how God said, listen, Lance, your view is so small. I have such a bigger view for you. I'll tell you this. I bumped into somebody today, and they were talking about life or whatever it was, and uh, I was, uh, I forgot what it was. But anyway, this morning I came in and I said, I love this, I love what I do. He goes, Lance, I can see it in you. There's nothing I would rather do. Some of you here today have been living a life that has been fraudulent. In other words, you, you've, been living, you've been living behind the shroud. On one hand, lifting your hands up high, untucking your shirt and worship to God on the outside. But on the inside, you're feeling like a phony. You're feeling as if someone could see who you really are. Can I just tell you today, you're safe. My call and challenge to you this morning is to be like the wise men and come unto Jesus for who you really are. He's not there to, to wreck your life and expose you as some sort of a fraud. His desire is to bring you closer to him, to show you who you really can be because he loves you. How are you when joy comes into your world? Do you run in fear or do you pause in worship? We head into this, this moment here in the next couple of days. Tomorrow night we have our Christmas Eve service at 4 and 6, and I want you to come. It's an amazing moment for us to get together as family. It's an hour-long service, so there'll be two hour-long services. It won't be real long, but it's a moment for us to come together in, in, in tradition, to be able to come and, and celebrate this moment together. And then we move into the next day where you're going to have family and friends and chaos and craziness and whatever it is that happens at your house. And by the way, some of you who aren't going to have anybody around you, you're going to find yourself lonely on Christmas morning. And you're going to feel like, what in the world is this all about? And you hate looking forward to that moment. To you, my heart breaks. And I hope that someone near you brings you in close and invites you into their world. But my prayer for us this morning is to stop as we head into these next few days to say, God, how will we worship you as you enter into our world today? As joy shows up 
in your world, not as a present under the Christmas tree, but as a, a moment in our world that we can cry out and say, God, only you. And we begin to worship him in purity and honesty. Will you join me this morning as we pray? Lord, this morning we come and we, we acknowledge our, our King Herodness. Like we acknowledge the times when we have been heart removed and hands lifted high. But Lord, we're also called this morning to come back to a place of authenticity where we would lift our voices both on the inside and on the outside and say, God, you alone be the glory. You alone be the glory. Maybe you're the here this morning and you find yourself in a place where you've never really surrendered your life to Christ. In other words, you've never really come to him with the true, authentic, open heart to say, God, I give you all of me. If that's you this morning and you've never surrendered your life to him, can you just take a moment just right now as we're quiet and say, God, I give you all of me. I surrender my life to you. I give you all the glory. Take all of my, my, my sin and shame and ashes and mess ups. And God, fill me with your spirit. Just go ahead between you and him. God, fill me today with your spirit. I give you my life. Maybe it's been a long time. You know the words. You know a couple of verses to that song. But it's been a long time. And God's calling you back to a place of surrender today. You don't have to get re-saved. You just need to get realigned. And say, God, I, I too want to give you all of me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll give you all the glory. We'll give you all the glory. We'll give you all the glory. He Christ the Lord.